Welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast. Uh, this is Brian Robertson. I'm a producer for the magazine. Uh, joining me is Christopher Heron. He's uh, the host of the magazine. Right. It's a video magazine. Let's just get yeah, that out the, of the way. Yeah, right. This, yeah, it's a video magazine. Um, but this is audio. This is our audio this podcast. This is a podcast for a video magazine. So this is the podcast for an interview with uh, American filmmaker Ronnie Asher. He sat down with us in... September of 2012 for the 2012 TIFF, where he presented his film Room 237. Uh, Room 237 is a documentary. Subjective documentary. It's a subjective documentary about um, Stan- Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Puts together, what, eight or nine? How many would you say? I thought it was five. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm right. pretty sure it was five. I think it was five. So maybe... Um, Maybe five, five to nine. Um, <laughs> conspiracy theories Anywhere surrounding between five and three hundred. Um, conspiracy theories surrounding the, the the film The Shining. Not all of them are conspiracy theories, right? But that is definitely how that is how it's being described, right? And it's it's a film that since we did that interview uh, with Rodney and the the film's producer Tim Kirk, it has skyrocketed in its coverage, especially in the last few months when it opened in New York. In the spring of 2013, mm-hmm. there was a lot of coverage. There were podcasts uh, interviewing Dedicated. Rodney oh, Asher. Right. So, although this this video came out um, well before that, we're now late to the game in this yeah. release. Yeah, but we're getting we're getting buried. <laughs> but I think I think it's interesting. I've listened to a lot of those podcasts, and and this interview um, with Rodney and, and Tim is, I think, remarkably different. Mm-hmm. I think that what a lot of the other interviews talk about is is those quote-unquote conspiracy theories those those readings of the shining by yeah. the um the subjects that you don't see in the film that you just hear um it's set to a kind of collage of of clips from kubrick's films from yeah. the shining um from other sources what we talk about in this interview is a, a lot of that that formal quality um and i think we touch on a bit of the the politics associated mm-hmm. with not showing these subjects um, and how the position Rodney and Tim took um, in representing these uh, their subjects, mm-hmm. um, because right. it could it could you know turn into making fun of them, which I think a lot of people discussing the film tend to do. Right. Which, which I don't know. I, I'm kind of unsettled by that. I don't think that I wouldn't use the word crazy that a lot of people do. I think that what I find interesting about Room 237 or Room 237 is that uh, they all have a a grounding at one point Mm -hmm. in the formal analysis of the film. Mm -hmm. There's always components that you you as a viewer recognize to be true because Rodney's showing you them as well. And there are ones where I can't can't see what they're talking about. Like, I literally can't see it. Sometimes there are references to things in the the frame uh, that I do not see. The the cloud? Yeah, the uh, cloud is, of course, the one that (laughs) comes to mind. That's ridiculous, yeah. um, Yeah, but it's, you know, highly entertaining, um, even if you're not familiar with the film. Yeah, I think that there are um, a lot of... if you're of, not interested in conspiracies, it's... Uh, I think the only one that qualifies as a conspiracy theory is the theory that um, Kubrick was involved in faking the moon landing. I think that the other ones don't necessarily have a conspiracy right, quality I, I don't know to if them. that's... I think that's that, that particular uh, story sort of resonates the most, I think, with people. But you think because about... Because like, there's, so there's so much mythology in that whole thing about, sure. about Kubrick doing that, like... 
But it's also like, oh, this is referring to him like tacitly admitting that he did it, and that is a kind of conspiracy. Whereas all the other ones, whether you believe them or not, they're they're like they're readings of art. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Or, or, the themes that Kubrick is maybe dealing with, right. such as like the massacre of the uh, the, the, the Native Amer- Americans, yeah, right. or you know the Holocaust. These mm-hmm. they're not implying that there is some type of connection between Kubrick as a person and yeah. these events. Yeah, it's yeah. him as an artist, right. kind of riffing on them. And and some of them are just generally about the or maybe um maybe him uh, reappropriating Stephen King's literature yeah or like de- like deliberately working against it because yeah. he kind of disdained yeah, it yeah but uh, yeah like talking like making these like Escher like um, impossibilities mm-hmm. that kind of play on the uneasiness of the the material mm-hmm. um, and what else had Rasher done uh, sorry Ronnie done at that point he uh, he. he directed that short film yeah the S from hell that looked at the screen gems logo and that kind of also works in that yeah subjective documentary collage um, video collage format yeah if you can find that if whoever's listening if they're interested look up that that short film. yeah it's it's available online yeah on on Rodney's uh, website actually yeah it's called the S from hell Um, it's really short it's great so yeah this is our interview from the 2012 uh, Toronto International Film Festival where Rodney and Tim were presenting Room 237 as part of the uh, part of Colin Getty's programmer's uh, Vanguard uh, program where kind of Midnight Madness meets the avant-garde, mm-hmm. the, the art house. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to describe Room 237. Yeah, for sure, for sure. kind of now gone now that deep like now that everything's VOD mm-hmm. it's like the concept of special features or something that's about a film is, is kind of receding into the landscape which is a drag for I had at least one friend who's mo- most of his work is making DVD extras <laughs> <laughs> so the so um, that's maybe not the most secure yeah. place to be right now that's very true I haven't thought of it as as what, putting it in a bigger sense like you did there would you call it, I don't know, we, we have something in our, our video magazine that we call video essays, which are basically an essay you would have about a film, like if you were an academic, but instead of writing about a scene, you're able to show that well, scene. Sure. Is that what you would describe it as? Um, certainly there's a big, there, there's, there's a big video essay influence, mm-hmm. and you know, in the making of it, you know, I had seen and considered things like, um, you know, the 90-minute Star Wars reviews, or that deconstruction of the, um, um, that, that car chase scene in The Dark Knight um, or those amazing ones that Kirby Ferguson does um, uh, Everything's a Remix yeah. um, you know probably what makes 237 different from a lot of those is it's not my voiceover driving it it's you know a roundup of five other experts points of view that we're struggling to um, you know sort of illuminate and you're using the voiceover, and I mean, I can understand that you don't want to have to create a bias by showing maybe the person uh, that's delivering it. You want to kind of purely represent what they think about the film, but the voiceover is still also kind of a loaded technique in documentary. Otherwise, it's almost um, has that aura of being a Richard Attenborough kind of factual. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. that, that voiceover brings a certain credence yeah. and authority. That's true. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm always interested in the way that, um, you know, in documentaries sometimes a person is brought forth as the expert, and there's never a contrary opinion. And depending on how much time they spend, you know, building up this person's credentials, the already of the audience is more or less inclined to take what he says as gospel. Yeah. So I think going into it, we weren't exactly sure, you know, what the ramifications were going to be of using these competing voices, but presenting alternate points of view in that format. It seemed like an exper interesting experiment to, to, to go through and to find out for ourselves as it, as, as it played whether um, different voices would reinforce each other or, you know, all be mutually exclusive. One thing we talked about early on was uh, nature documentaries where you see the the poor hungry gazelle and, and or, I'm sorry, the poor hungry lion and needs to feed its cubs and it tracks down the gazelle. And then you see the other version, which is about the lovely gazelle that's trying to survive and this horrible um, lion is haunting it. And you could use the same footage, it would just be a different mm. voiceover or a different point of view. Um, that was one of the things we talked about. I know I teach a, a film editing class, and one of the you know first exercises we run through is a bunch of nature footage. Mm. And having previously you know spent a fair amount of time discussing screen direction, you know I would have the students make these little dramas where like a mouse comes out of a hole and he looks screen right, and we have a shot of a hawk looking screen left, and then the mouse continues, turns around and goes back into the hole. Or actually that mouse shot is one continuous shot. It comes out of the hole, looks screen right, runs back into the hole. But if you intercut it with the, you know, with the shot of the hawk, clearly it seems like the hawk is looking at the mouse and the mouse is reacting um, to the hawk. And it's always kind of mind-blowing because, you know, people assume that you're watching a documentary and every, everything you see is exactly the way it happened and, well, very clearly, these are two very real things. Mm. The mouse did come out of the hole and go back in, and the hawk did turn this way. But the only reason that you know we're making this relationship is based on screen direction and these opposing looks, which is something that you know most people don't even question. <laughs> um, you know, but um, I think that was an exercise among many that we did in the class that you know made me kind of you know, question some of the conventions of the documentary forum and mm. made me think it would be fun to kind of kind of manipulate some of those um, you know also there's that long section in the film where John Thel Ryan is talking about his experiences working at a film archive and how he started to doubt the relationship between what he was seeing and what he was saying and what he was seeing in the footage and what he was hearing in the voiceover um, he suggested that Kubrick having seen those sorts of newsreels growing up might have been doing something very similar in The Shining and of course that gave me permission in the edit to stretch the relationship <laughs> between what we're seeing and what we're hearing, um, you know, in kind of interesting ways. Well, I find it interesting that you use repetitive shots, especially of the theater, some people watching in the beginning, because it cues the spectator to be aware that you are imposing these images over this these voiceovers, like you're selecting it. Mm -hmm. and because the, even if you were taking freely from different sources and that may make someone think of a kind of curator of images, the fact that when you repeat an image, it seems like you shouldn't do that, like that, you, that it doesn't work. It, yeah, or 
but, but, or, but when you repeat an image, now you're seeing it in a new context, yeah. but you can still keep the old context mm, yeah. in mind. Like, there's, we, we always get an interesting reaction. There's that time where Jay Widener is talking about some of the images that he sees when he moves through the film very slowly, in particular, that little hidden, that little hidden image when Jack and Ullman shake hands. Um, and you know, 10 minutes or so later, we see that shot again when Julie is talking about the window. And people remember that first thing, but now they're seeing this shot in a different way. Um, and of course, the other exercise that I got especially engaged in was using the same characters as surrogates for different people. Mm. So Jack Nicholson can sometimes be Jack Nicholson, but he can also be Jack Torrance, or he can also be Stanley Kubrick, or he can also be, be Bill Blakemore, or he can also be how many other people. Mm. And kind of testing that, um, I think, was one of the fun games um, you know, in the process. What about the process of altering the images, kind of intervening and mm -hmm. adding like video where there isn't any, or changing the shining poster inserting? Yeah, uh, well, I tried to. I, 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 it, it, it was you know great fun to do that. You know, especially at that beginning when we see the shining posters. Although there's a part of me that was kind of reluctant to, reluctant to do it because I was getting more as as the process continued. I was getting more and more interested in how different can the image be um, and can we expect the audience to project something different on it like could he be really looking at just a poster for a jazz musician and can the audience see that as a poster for the shining um, though we started we, we started a little easier and also in a way that trying to make it seamless enough that a lot of people have said was he really looking at a poster for the shining I don't remember that I don't remember that scene um, I don't know if I answered that question, but... <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's an implication as well because it's a film about looking closely at like the text and the text as being the sure. sacred object and you are clearly taking away that, <laughs> that uh, pristine uh, wrapping and... Well, I mean, that goes into John Phil Ryan's thing of what you're hearing and what you're seeing is sometimes the same thing, but other times um, you need to pay attention and challenge it and, 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 and consider it. Um, you know, I don't know that Room 237 has an obligation to be more rigorous in that relationship than the film that we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, the film starts with, with, with kind of an interesting joke like that, which is we see Tom Cruise walking down the street and eyes wide shut. And the what and the village in New York is being is standing in for Europe, and he's standing in for Bill Blakemore, who's going to tell us a story about seeing the film for the first time. And we have a burn that says Europe. Well, in fact, it is Europe because Stanley Kubrick shot that, as we know, um, near his home in England. So I think that kind of on a repeat viewing, or at least for me, I always kind of feel like we're pretty straightforward and lay our cards on the table right off the bat what we're going to do with repurposing footage and so forth, assigning meaning or allowing meaning to be assigned to different shots. Mm. And the use of different films that are outside of the Shining clips, uh, even outside of Kubrick, um, they kind of make the viewer aware that the entire thing is about media consumption to a certain extent mm -hmm. because the associations that the experts are making or the associations that they've come to through their own life and what they've read or, or been interested in outside of the film and and that brings us to your interests in, in what 
or be the clips that you have chosen? Well, sure, and a lot of those clips are things that have been personally very important to me um, and are sort of images that come to my mind when I'm hearing these folks talk, but also imagining you know, the kind of landscape of film that they're moving through mm -hmm. and the ones that have made big influences on them or characters from these movies that they might see themselves oh. in. Um, yeah, I think there's a moment that really resonates for me in that where Bill Blakemore is talking about discovering that the film is really about the Native American Indians and there's this shot of very like emblematic shot from a western of like scout looking down and seeing this Indian tribe coming and so forth and, and I, I just I feel like that's the image that would have been going through both the narrator and the viewer automatically anyway you know if we hadn't put it there one that pops into my mind. One that stood out to me was uh, a kind of a, a shot from the what looked to be the TV series version of The Shining, um, but it was kind of apropos of nothing. It was kind of just snuck in there. Like it didn't seem like there was a one-to-one -one relationship with what was being talked about. Well, no, I wouldn't want to tell you how you have to see it. Yeah. Although maybe I'm in danger of doing that in this, <laughs> in, in, in this interview throughout. But the Shining TV series is. The, the handful of clips that we mm. use from there are to represent the Shining book mm. because Stephen King was much more actively involved in the miniseries yeah. and um, although it's not exactly, although it, may, it takes its own departures yeah. from the book as much as the Kubrick film does, it does restore a lot of elements from the book um, that people questioned, the hedge animals and um, the garden hose attack mm. <laughs> and, and a few other things. Um, so that was sort of, you know, thinking about the other places it uses, there, there may be two or three different things that are happening with the TV series, but one of, the, one, one of its purposes was to represent scenes from the book. And it's interesting, I can't remember which expert mentions it, but they're talking about what they call kind of postmodern approach to uh, intent, and it's kind of basically Roland Barthes' death of the author. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, it's interesting the way Kubrick's relationship to King and, and not really caring about what was going on in the book, he was basically just going to appropriate it. It's almost the same relationship that they are having to the Kubrick film, which is that to a certain point, his intent doesn't necessarily matter. It's what their, their reading of the text is. Mm -hmm. Well, or his intent doesn't matter to one degree, but it's also kind of impossible to know. Yeah. Because he would both, I know, be reluctant to talk about his mm. intent. I think there was a quote from his, him where you know, he said, saying something plainly, um, this, this, is, this is not the words that he yeah. used, but he said saying something plainly is much less potent than leaving it in in a subtler way for people to come and discover on their own. Mm. And that if the Mona Lisa had a little plaque underneath it saying, she's smiling this way because she's thinking about a lost lover, then people would immediately lose all interest mm. <laughs> in it. Um, so you put that into context with the idea that choices could have been made subconsciously or you know, through some other random kind of act or through the influence of a production designer or a cameraman or an actor um, that you know, these kind of allegories and symbols could have gotten into the film in any number of ways. Um, 
And I have to admit that I'm more on the, on board with that kind of postmodern approach because what struck me as odd is how almost slavishly many of the experts are uh, in establishing the intent and how and trying to argue why this would be plausible when it seems like thank you that that's unknowable. So when they're talking about one was mentioning that Kubrick was probably getting bored at this point, like that's to me of all of the uh, intent arguments is the most. Personal, like how would you know how mm -hmm. bored he was? Like at least when you're talking about he may have read this book. Yeah, that's some. Well, I mean, I think that goes to something that I've always experienced watching his films. Um, is that his point of view is so clear and resonates so strongly with so many of us mm -hmm. that like I watch a Stanley Kubrick movie and you know ever since I was a teenager and when I was you know a ridiculous suburban punk and. You know, Clockwork Orange was the most important film, yeah. <laughs> film, film, film to me. I had to assume that the person who made it was somebody very much like myself, mm. because we had the same sense of humor and we had the same sensibility and the same values. So, um, I think it therefore becomes easier to imagine what's going through the head of the filmmaker. Mm. Um, I think that's what I got. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also, I mean. Some, some, some people put forward as if Kubrick's intention was to create a riddle mm. and to create a riddle that perhaps only they could decipher. So that again, like Rodney's saying, that personalizes the relationship between not only them in the film, but them in the filmmaker, mm. you know? Yeah, well, and I might think that another thing that kind of sort of happened accidentally in the making of this film that seemed to be kind of an interesting um, little thread that was running through it is besides looking at the different theories people have about what the film really means, a lot of them have sort of different strategies for decoding the movie. And those are strategies that are used by different people to interpret, you know, different works of art or the world around them um, and sort of exploring those different angles of attack. Um, that was something that I just thought found was, was was really interesting. Like I know, like Bill Blakemore and um, Julie Kearns. Well, and actually, in Jeff, I'm going to say like at the beginning, they each found sort of like a key, mm -hmm. whether it was the Cali McCann or the um, skier poster or the typewriter. Mm -hmm. That there was one little image that popped up, and then that helped stimulate the rest of them. Um, and then some of the other folks. Well, I guess there's only two other folks, but uh, John Phil Ryan and, and Julie kind of had different strategies. You know, John and Jay had two different, had other strategies for to get underneath, to, to, to get into the hood of mm. uh, uh, what's in the movie. Yeah, and, and, and Bill Blakemore explicitly and Jeffrey Cox, not quite so, feels like the experience of the film, the intention of the experience of the film is that you don't get it the first time. Mm. That, you, that that was Stanley's intention you would just experience it as a haunted house movie and maybe you would think there's something wrong I need to see it again and then upon seeing it again it would start to reveal itself and for Blakemore that's because the first time you see it and this is in the film you just remember how horrified you are for this this woman and this child and the second time as you start to understand the deeper themes you're able to transfer that immediate fear and concern for that family to the world at large and the family of man. So I just love that the, the setup is you're really supposed to have a sort of an unsatisfied experience the first time you view the film. 
Well, and certainly the movie was made in 1980 at the very dawn of the home video revolution. And I don't think there was another film that was shot in the same way to allow itself for, to a 4x3 four, four VHS conversion. Mm. Most movies have the left and right yeah. of the frame cropped off, which means you either lose some of the image or that the original widescreen composition was made much less compelling so that the left, ed- left and right edges of the frame were just filled with empty space that was expendable. But he shot it, you know, where the top with full frames so that, so that you could extend the picture up and down to fill the 4x3 image. Mm. Um, which is why we can see the helicopter shadow in that one, a traveling shot. But, you know, that so clearly speaks to the idea that this movie was very much designed to be rewatched on VHS um, and to be formatted for, 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 for that screen as well as the, the big screen. Yeah, you can make a full movie about people arguing how, uh, what aspect ratio Kubrick wanted his films to be presented. <laughs> um, but it's interesting you mentioned that because I think one of all of the kind of approaches to the text, one that stood out to me is the forward-backwards one because that's the one that's, A, I think least likely to be argued that was necessarily Kubrick's intent. It seems like it's more just a pure um, enlightenment experience for the viewer to mm-hmm. have to kind of see it in a new way, but also how difficult that would be to attain prior to you know just throwing in Final Cut and adjusting the opacity. And it seems like it's the one that's the most purely about just the spectator, and it has nothing to do with what Kubrick was necessarily intending. I mostly agree, <laughs> though I think there is something to say that the structure of the film is symmetrical yeah. and certainly like the first like the a, a first very major section of the movie is a tour of the locations yeah. in which things are going to happen yeah. and then a lot of and then we sort of revisit those scenes in roughly the same place yeah. towards the end of the film um, or even you put that in context with the idea that I find very compelling and I've seen in places and I've seen in at least another place or two that 2001 is some sort of reversal. Mm. The Shining is some sort of reversal of 2001. Yeah. It's man's de-evolution to savagery <laughs> instead of evolution to enlightenment and, and, and outer space. Um, so even if the, the shot-by-shot juxtapositions might not always line up in compelling ways, mm. though eerily enough, they often do, mm. um, being able to sort of see how the movie tracks backwards while you're watching it um, is, pre- is, is, is a pretty interesting way to look at it, and I think that might work even if you had it in sort of an inset window. Okay, yeah. Um, and you can say, well, here's how the movie plays <laughs> backwards. Um, I think for me, it's, it, I think it's sort of the cinematic version of Burroughs' cut-ups. Oh, yeah. But I think it attests to Kubrick's symmetry, symmetry that, I know it's not random, but that you could almost superimpose any images and there will be some interrelation because of the consistency of, of, of his framing and his vision. Yeah, well, and I think it talks, you know, a little bit about the John Phil Ryan near the end of the film says, you know, this movie is kind of a trap for people like me because I go out and look for clues and I keep finding them. Mm-hmm. And, like, he sort of had this idea he read on um, The Mastermind had written you know, a lot about The Shining and had, you know, this one sort of line, The Shining is a film made to be seen forwards and yeah. backwards. And he said, well, let me test that idea. Um, and he was probably just as prepared for it not to mm. amount to anything 
as for it to amount to something very, very serious. Um, but then once he did it, he said, my God, look how much. He was surprised himself to see how much stuff lined up and how provocative it is. And since he's also the guy who talks about the importance of dissolves and how you know, it's not just a transition, but there's this interstitial moment where the two pictures come together in a significant way, um, sort of creating an entire film of a dissolve, you know, kind of takes that idea even further. It's consistent with, with yeah. what's going on. And what's film. even more amazing, and I found this out after, after the film, but it's a great... Um, it's a great thing about John is, and I believe this is an unrelated coincidence, but it seems to be, you know, like a lot of these, too much to be a coincidence. He happens to be an incredibly accomplished palindromist. That <laughs> <laughs> John Paul Ryan can speak forwards and backwards yeah. as well, which is, you know, there's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, but maybe that's why he's so interested in looking at things forwards and backwards because that's the way he's already set up yeah. <laughs> to think and to talk mm -hmm. and listening to you know red rum red rum it's like that's interesting he's speaking backwards mm -hmm. he thinks about speaking backwards more often than <laughs> most of us do mm -hmm. uh, I, the skeptic in me made me think that it's you know Kubrick always tends to compose with someone in the middle of the frame so like when you run it it's going to it's going to match up in that way but what I find interesting about this approach generally is that it's making people aware of the form and the, the concept of framing and, and things like that. And a lot of people describe the film as being theories or conspiracy theories, and especially critics, I've read a few interviews where they're like, oh, I'm looking at films differently now after having seen this. And I'm thinking, all you're doing now is you're no longer paying attention to the story. You're starting to finally just pay attention to the form. And I wanted to talk about how this film kind of relates to just academia and like the, the history of, of formal analysis of film. And, and how that's seen as less of a pop culture, a mainstream approach, and this is kind of bridging those two spheres in some way. Uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I have a lot of sympathy for the people you're talking about, because, you know, um, I remember reading, I can't remember where, but it was about um, an early, early Soviet cinema where uh, some someone was visiting from the country had never seen a film and the film was somewhat of a familiar art form to people who lived in the city and they dropped this this woman off at the cinema and she came out and she was just in tears and she was terrified and she, there was this this head was cut off and this hand was cut off and these were of course close-ups yeah. but it takes a lot we're so familiar with film and, and the language of film right now it takes a lot to sort of shock you out to make you look specifically at the form yeah. and and not at the narrative and not make those associations and, and connectivity that we're just so used to. So, I don't know if we've succeeded in, in, in jump-starting a conversation like that, I, I'm very happy. Um, I'm not sure how much I have to add, but... Um, I mean, I don't come from a super hardcore academic background, although those are issues that you know, I'm very interested in. Um, though I also very much wanted this movie to be entertaining and watchable. Right. <laughs> um, and going with a subject matter like The Shining, which is such a, a popular um, uh, popular movie, makes it a little bit easier to, you know, get people into, you know, what's really an hour and 40 
long, uh, an hour and 40 minute long exercise in semiotics mm -hmm. and having some jokes in the first half yeah. <laughs> kind of makes it go down <laughs> a, 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 a little easier too. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 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 I've had some great experiences after the film talking with folks who are incredibly excited to discuss meaning and allegory yeah. and symbols. Um, when it seems like that's not something that you know a lot of them do yeah. <laughs> all, all, all the time. Well, there's the relationship between the mastermind kind of acknowledging the, the forwards, backwards, and that causing mm -hmm. a, a different approach from someone else. But how, how much overlap is there between the experts? Like, is, are these kind of hermeneutic, like just sitting down with the text, not paying attention to what other people are saying about the film, or is there a crossover in sharing ideas about? Most of them had been working alone before we got to them, except for I think John Fell Ryan, yeah. of all of them, had probably been cross-pollinating and talking yeah. um, to more experts and you know reading more of this. I mean, he even talks about, you know, I was looking at the I was looking at these sites and I was reading what the mastermind had to yeah. say. Um, certainly after the screening, uh, 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 Jeffrey Cox and um, Bill Blakemore you know, came to our, our premiere at Sundance yeah. and since both their ideas kind of dovetail sort of nicely um, and that they come from a more similar background. Mm. You know, they hit it off really well and have started talking a lot and sharing ideas. And John Phil Ryan is actually the guy who, talking to him, he's the one who introduced me to Julie's work and her maps. Because he had some maps that were interesting but not as elaborate as hers. Mm. And he said, if you want to see somebody who's doing really interesting work mapping the hotel, you know, talk to Julie Kearns. Um, you know, so maybe we've got those two wings um, those two schools of thought and Jay Widener does collaborate with he doesn't collaborate with the other people in our film but he does collaborate you know with a ton of other people um, you know in, 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 in other forums there are some some experts that didn't get into our film like Rob Age or Wrong Way Wizard there's a bunch of these people but um, and there, those there is a bit more of a, of a community of like there's discussion boards and flame wars and all the stuff that you expect <laughs> that. Um, but some lively conversations too. But you know, our film didn't end up becoming about the community, it's about the yeah. ideas. Um, and I think Rodney outlined pretty well what, where they were. Um, well, I'm wondering how did you kind of then organize the structure of the film? I assume like when you're talking to each one separately, they're not necessarily aware of what other people have said mm -hmm. and how they will fit into the film. And I mean, it, it announces its structure at the start, so that's also interesting to me. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it was originally, originally going through the interviews, I'd edited them into these self-contained segments, you know, three minutes, seven minutes, five minutes, and they weren't braided together for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was only, you know, halfway, two-thirds of the way through the process where we started to, you know, put them on um, post-it notes and look for the interrelations. Um, and although the structure can sometimes seem a little stream of consciousness, there's some, in the, in the biggest, broadest picture of what's happening is at the beginning we talk about their first encounters with the film and maybe what is going to be their angle of attack. You know, what's their decoder ring? What's their strategy? And then, you know, the very the long middle section is them laying out their big ideas and getting them more complicated. Maybe see, maybe as we get, you know, towards the, you know, to the 75% mark, they start to interrelate more. And then, you know, our final act is 
how has the shining, how's the study of the shining changed these people's lives? Um, and for some of them, it's changed. It's it's these ideas um, in this in this work has had kind of a profound effect on their lives. I like they use the word lives because it, with some of them, it's very clear that their whole approach is so imbued by what they were already interested in to the point where like there's obviously the debate of how much of this is kind of projecting your own particular interests on but it's also what happens with most people who study things is that something else that they're interested in crosses over well but it can be a chicken and an egg yeah. kind of question too it's like if i'm really interested in if i'm really interested in um animal rights. I might see animal right themes in different works of art. And it might be that I'm projecting them, but of course a very real possibility is if the artist was interested in animal rights and had done something subtly in the piece of work, I am more primed to recognize it because I'm more operating on a similar wavelength. <laughs> yeah, it often comes down to the argument that L. Kubrick had clearly had an interest in this because of this piece of personal biographical biograph, biography, I guess. Uh, like he had read this mm -hmm. same book, especially with the sub subliminal. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting as well because the subliminal, I don't know, maybe this is my reading of it, but the, the, the picture of Kubrick in the clouds seems like the type of thing that I can't see it. And I've talked to numerous people that cannot see this and we've tried to see it. And you don't make any effort to necessarily point out where it's supposed to be. Is there any, was there ever a point where in getting the clips to kind of correspond with what they're talking about that you just had a difficulty seeing what they saw? For the most part, no. And for the most part, I was especially excited when I would find them because I would, these were all audio interviews. Yeah. I had, was talking to folks on the phone, I mailed them digital audio recorders. Um, and I would scroll through the movie as they talked, but sometimes the conversation would go so quick that I'd miss a couple of points and not really get what they were saying um, until I went back and put the film together. And then I'd have like this eureka moment. And, and certainly when John Paul Ryan was talking about the forwards-backwards thing, I couldn't see any of it. Um, and I know there's that shot he talks about where Jack looks like kind of like a clown. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess that sounds kind of creepy. <laughs> and we talked about it a little bit and we moved on. But then when I laid them on top of each other, I was like, Jesus Christ, that thing is horrible. That's the most disturbing, frightening thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but sometimes Rodney was, was scrolling through the film while he was doing the interviews. Yeah. And I remember listening to uh, the, the interview with Jay Widener as I was taking notes and so forth. And there's a part where Jay's talking about discovering this phallus in the sea. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting there listening like, I, I, I can't even imagine this is real. And then I hear Rodney go, oh my God, there it is. <laughs> so, yeah. And the, and the clown thing is something that I think I can see it. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think having one that's a challenge is kind of, is, is especially interesting. And, 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 and the fact that it's a figure in the clouds, which you know, a skeptic can say that some of this work in general is like looking, is like seeing images in the clouds. Mm, okay, that that's, yeah. that, that that's all, proje all um, projective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's interesting that that's like the most difficult one mm. because the idea of seeing things in the clouds is emblematic of, you know, kind of a projective reading. Um, um, I think I see it. <laughs> Only the one I see lasts more than just a frame. Mm. So I'm not sure if it's what, so I'm, I'm not 100% 
that that's the one that he's talking about. What I find interesting about all of the readings is that they all kind of, to some extent, allude to something outside of The Shining, be it a conversation about the, the Native Americans or uh, the Holocaust or um, Apollo 11. And I'm wondering, with some of these, and, and, and the example that stands out in my mind is when there's the aerial shot of um, the boy playing on the carpet and then mm -hmm. it being closed, I can, I, I get that. I see that that probably was intentional, but to me, my mind is going more to like character study, like how do these formal devices just relate to the story and just relate to the, the characters in the text, mm -hmm. whereas many of uh, the, these theories or, or readings uh, allude to things outside or... Just strip it from the narrative. Yeah. I agree. Um, well, I'm just <laughs> curious, like how, uh, why maybe you think that that's a, a through line through all of these these readings is that they they use the text to talk about things maybe outside of it as opposed to just how these devices relate to the story. Maybe this goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about the film is some of these people believe that the film is intentionally an unsatisfying experience and that, well, I'll agree with you that formally a lot of that stuff is very important, yeah. that maybe the idea is that you're supposed to view it stripped from the narrative and, and stripped from the, the obvious intention yeah. of the formal aspects. But that's just a guess. Yeah, and certainly both Bill and Julie, I think, talk about Kubrick films in general and The Shining yeah. in particular as, you know, ending with a puzzle. Um, you know, basically confronting and insisting that the audience go back and look for clues of some sort. Uh -huh. um, you know, certainly the picture at the end is begging a question of what does this mean and not symbolically, what does it mean just as far as the story is concerned. Right. Um, but I love that The Shining has inspired you know, people to look at it at these other layers, both about Kubrick's biography and about you know, different you know, political messages or allegories. Because you know, you know, when I read, you know, people talking about something like, you know, Prometheus or um, the last couple of recent movies that have sort of caused people to speculate on things, a lot of what they write about, um, interesting as it is, is about just sort of the plot in the story and saying, well, you have to put this into you know, on, on the level of the text, right. and not on, not, not on these layers upon layers of you know, metaphoric readings. Right. Like with the Christopher Nolan film? Yeah, like people talk a lot about Inception, right. um, you, know, they, you know, they debate, is it a dream, is it not a dream? Right. That's what all about the story. The dream, yeah. although, although I did see one where people were talking about it as sort of an investigation into the movie making process, and that the dreams are like cinema, but I haven't seen like five or six or seven entirely alternate yeah, <laughs> readings yeah, yeah. of the movie yet. Right. Um, but The Shining just creates those, you know, sort of seems to be generating them spontaneously. But there is something about with this sort of clue aspect mm -hmm. to it, where it is often a single shot or something that's very much formal and part of the film right. that sparks this entire theory. We were just reading a new one where the position of Jack's hands in the photograph at the end suggests this sort of goat-like figure in tarot cards, mm. and this inspires this sort of alchemaic 
um, understanding of the film. Um, but again, that starts with one image and then goes, goes outward. And it seems like Kubrick is maybe the only director that this could apply to because so much of this is based on his rigor as a human being because like it's so easy to just when even talking to filmmakers how often it comes up like oh I just thought that that looked interesting in that uh -huh. moment or yeah. like the cinematographer just thought that that looked interesting yeah, yeah. and and how much of this maybe is unique and, and there are two experts that, uh, that chronicle Kubrick, Kubrick beyond the, just The Shining but mm -hmm. how important is Kubrick as well, I mean, certainly he has a reputation as the, as the most meticulous, accomplished filmmaker, you know, of his day. One who had, you know, how many masterpieces behind him when he was when, when he set out to make The Shining, um, you know. But also more than, you know, most any other filmmaker, his films are assumed to be the vision of a singular personality. You know that all movies, his included, are collaborations. Um, though his sometimes seem like less a collaboration yeah. <laughs> than, 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 than other people's. And Kubrick is noticeably almost completely absent from your film, which I found really interesting. <laughs> like, there's so many opportunities to use that type, the images or, or video of him, and he's almost completely outside of the film. Yeah, well, I mean, there, 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 there's a couple times when it gets in there, but you know, again, it got kind of interesting that for it to be a, this is not a exhaustive biography of Stanley mm -hmm. Kubrick by any means, but more, and you know, a look at you know the idea of Kubrick and what does Kubrick mean to people. Right. So it got interesting, you know, frequently through it to use stand-ins for Kubrick or right. surrogates of him or just to imagine his sort of presence behind. Presence. Like, you know, in Jaws, you don't see a whole lot of the shark. <laughs> Well, it also alludes to some extent to the relationship um, these people have to Kubrick, because Kubrick's so important to their their readings. But in, in many ways, they will ne they never have that relationship with him. It, he is always gone. He doesn't know these people. He, they didn't know him when he was alive. Right, right. I think these, you know, these are smart people, <laughs> and they're passionate, and they're very involved. And you know, I tend to think those are. Those are characteristics that Stanley shared. So I think there is there's definitely some connection with him that starts the whole thing rolling. Well, it's amazing because I know by talking to Bill Blakemore, you know, he told me that he saw Stanley Kubrick not as an incredibly important artist and filmmaker, but in a complicated way, also an incredibly accomplished journalist. Mm. Um, because Bill Blakemore is a journalist and he sees a kinship between their two works and my having taught editing for two years before really getting into the film made me consider what an interesting editor he was you know and I think about that scene in 2001 before we go to the bone uh, spaceship transition but just you know sort of that when, when he's holding the bone and then we see the um, those like bores falling, or like a flat, like a flash forward or something. Yeah, well, like, yeah. And it's like, is it a flash forward? <laughs> is it an idea? Is is he just being told what this thing can do? Yeah. Are we seeing what's going to happen because of it? And it's a kind of an unanswerable but fascinating puzzle. Mm -hmm. And there's something similar that happens in room two three seven where um, we see Jack entering to the room through his eyes, but it might be Danny projecting that image into Halloran's head, yeah. and then we see the old woman coming towards Jack, but 
there's like a jump cut of her rising out of the tub that looks like it's photographed backwards and it could possibly be a memory that Halloran has had. I um, mean, there's so many ways to approach that little sequence of shots, so I'm incredibly fascinated by what, by what he's doing in his editing style and think of him as an incredibly smart, forward-thinking editor. And I was talking about that idea to Jonathan Snipes, and who, him and Bill Hudson were our music composers, and he said, that's funny, I think of Stanley Kubrick as the most accomplished music supervisor because his choices of music in the soundtrack are so provocative and, 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 and work so perfectly. So that was, you know, so each of us are seeing Kubrick as sort of a much better version of ourselves. In your uh, interactions with the, the experts and, and you're noticing these things from an editing standpoint, are you ever supplying questions to them like to maybe provoke further research? Like you mentioned, these series of point of view shots and what they might mean. Are you ever offering these points to see if... I, tr I tried, yeah. but that was never very fruitful. Whenever I would try to insinuate my own ideas into it, they would never really go into terribly fruitful conversations. And even in follow-up emails, um, Rodney threw out something that would seem to me really evocative. And they'd run, but they'd run a different direction. They'd be like, that's very interesting. That made me think about something completely yeah. different. Because I have a theory that the room 237 scene is actually edited out of sequence. In that Jack goes into that room before, Jack goes into the room before um, Wendy wakes him up. Um, and I could write a little thing about <laughs> that idea. And I was kind of hoping that I might suggest that idea to one of them and that they'd take it and if I'd be able to present it. But they just weren't biting. And even when. Like, I would have notes of what people had written. And so when, the harder I would try to solicit them to say specific things that they had said before, the worse it would go. Mm. So it was always just kind of letting them follow their paths. And they would often come up with things that they hadn't. That they would you know, spontaneously say things that they hadn't um, written about that were you know, even more interesting. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know, for some reason, the way Jay gets into you know, his inspiration about the Apollo 11 mission, he tells it in a way that is so compelling because he's not just saying, here's how it works, these symbols mean this. He says, I got the, the Blu-ray in the mail and I turned it on and I was watching and I have this revelation and you know, he brings us to that moment of discovery, um, which is you know, just such a rewarding story um, when, when, when listening to it. Um, yeah, so a lot of these interviews would just... Uh, my I, think, I think with Jay, you asked like three questions. Yeah, and then you would just go. When I would try to be too calculating about getting them to, to, to come forward with specific points, it was never very good. Yeah, it's like <laughs> an hour-plus conversation. I think Ronnie asked three questions, <laughs> and one was probably, how are you doing today, or something. <laughs> or so how did you come to... You know, start studying the work of right, Stanley Kubrick. Right, right. Um, well, and, and I think I've read from um, more experienced, accomplished documentarians than myself that the best questions are the simplest ones. Why? Really? <laughs> In that trying to ask a clever question is, is, is not always the best strategy. Has it reached a point where maybe? The relationship with this project has provoked the experts to 
pursue a, a video of their own to just present their argument? Because I think I read that there's one, maybe it was the mastermind, that is preparing a DVD or something that's going to present. Well, Jay Wagner has already released two. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one is, sounds pretty amazing because yeah. he's kind of outsourcing it. He's got, I guess a bunch of people have come to him and said, oh, we're finding this in the film, we're finding this. Mm. And he says, I've got this army out there watching these films closer than anyone's ever watched and discovering things that have never been seen. So that's pretty cool. And then there's Rob Angel. Yeah, because we, we had approached him, but the timing didn't work out. He's written these amazing things you know, about Kubrick films um, on his site. And he's making his own DVD. He's made a bunch of YouTube clips. And there's, if you go on YouTube and look for Shining Analysis, mm. you'll see you know, a hundred alternate versions of Room 237. Um, oh, really? Made by, you know, different folks who've, se who've seen different things. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's even, like, someone will make a video. Rob Ager has made this video about the... He feels that there's, there's a head, a severed head visible in the blood. Oh, Tony, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Tony, yeah. right. And then there's another guy who's made a rebuttal video <laughs> using really advanced CGI to... To see, here's how the light would come, and here's the source that would create the look of that. And that's a perfect like example of maybe my relationship to the whole project, which is that I find it interesting just the observation that at a certain point in the film, Tony is no longer present. I, I don't need a, a potential severed head mm -hmm. to like be a eureka moment for that. Mm. It's just the structure of the story is interesting. Like, yeah, Tony is gone at this point. That there is mm. well, if that head is there, it's subtle. <laughs> <laughs> It was, oh, that's interesting. was there a point when you were kind of going through the, the wormhole of this that you felt like maybe you were in some like uh, Jorge Luis Borges story <laughs> where like now you're making a film about people who are analyzing this and they've got armies of people that are also approaching this? I know, absolutely. And, well, you know, there's also a, you know, a, a very strong relationship between the process and you know, where Jack was in his life. Mm. And if you would look at the making of this film, a lot of it is me sitting at a keyboard for hours and hours and hours, not far from a big staircase, um, working on something that could potentially just be gibberish. <laughs> um, resenting intrusions from my wife and small son. Yeah. Um, I mean, me and, me and Tim have talked a lot about it because, you know, we both have very small children and having, if we originally watched The Shining um, through the you know, point of view of Danny, um, we're certainly at the stage in our lives where Jack is, you know, the character to identify with and to see as a very cautionary <laughs> figure. And I've always felt if, if, if in Rodney's scenario, he's Jack typing away, I'll work and I'll play, that I'm the overlook enabling him <laughs> to think that his work is brilliant, you know? <laughs> And it really felt that way for a long time. Or Grady, even. Even Grady, yes. <laughs> You've always been the caretaker. Right? <laughs> um, the poster I find really interesting because it's almost like I, I saw the poster actually having after watching the film, and I found that that moment the most pers persuasive, which is that shot and the pattern, mm -hmm. and especially the the map. I'm wondering how that is. That maybe like a, a support of that as like a striking. Uh, argument within these sea of arguments, or how did you come to choose that as? Well, I, I'm I'm deciding whether or not to answer this question, so as to not um, to, 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 to 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 leave yeah. to, to to leave the window open. I to would say, looking at it differently. How about this? 
that, that they both spring from the same life spring of Kubrick and of, of attraction to that shot. Well, and I think in Within the Shining and in Room 237, the moment when Danny is being drawn to the door is yeah. Yeah. a key moment yeah. in the way John Paul Ryan says, that's the activation. Right. Um, and the, like the moment when Danny walks to the, to the door is which is ultimately going to activate the story and bring Grady over and set off his mom to accuse Jack and make you know all the um, to, to, to set off all the chain reactions of the second half of the film is incredibly like the moment in 2001 where Haywood Floyd and the other men on the moon uncut touch the monolith and activate the you know message from beyond Jupiter that's going to send the mission <laughs> out that you know that's where you know every that's that, that, that that's where the meat of the drama really really goes and you know in 237 that moment you know where we look at that carpet more carefully is one that for people who may have been skeptical about some of the other possible continuity errors possible moments po possible signs cannot deny yeah. that there's something weird happening here. And for anyone who's worked on a movie set would know that to get that wrong is harder than to get it right because you would have to physically take all of those cars and move them from one side of the thing to another yeah. and, tell Dan, and tell Danny Lloyd to rotate himself 180 degrees. And I guess if you used the carpet from the actual room, it would be too sexually provocative for a poster. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, thank you, guys. Well, thank you.